Hello and welcome to episode 584 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio and I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, welcoming you to the show with a little bit of surf music like we do every single week here on the podcast. This time around, we are revisiting a band called the Catatonics. Catatonics, that's with a K, can be found at catatonics.bandcamp.com. They just put out an, I guess it's an EP. There's three songs on this release, and one of them is called Savvy Show Stopper. That's the song you're hearing right now. You're going to hear it in its entirety at the end of this episode, of course. In the meantime, though, if you've got to get it for yourself, I don't encourage you to do this all the time, but go ahead and hit pause, head over to catatonics.bandcamp.com, check out their release, On Tour from Canada. Check out this song, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Then make sure you come back. Because this week on the show, we've got Patrick Wayne from Monster Bash. Yes, the son of the Duke made an appearance at this past summer's Monster Bash. And once again, courtesy of friend of the show, Monster Kid Radio reporter, recorder, extraordinaire, Mike R. He recorded this conversation, this Q&A with Patrick Wayne. So we're going to get that this week here on the show. And of course, it would not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without all the other bells and whistles. And by bells, I mean Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review and whistles, I mean Kenny's look at famous monsters of film lands. So and we've got those two segments coming up here as well. You know what? I just want to dive into it. I'm having such a good time with all this content that's come in from Monster Bash. I'm just eager to get to it. So we're going to get to that. We're going to do Kenny. We're going to do Mark. We're going to do all of that right now. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. The Kyonan University Physics Department successfully launches a research satellite into space, garnering the institution worldwide attention. The story is personal to Soga, whose fiance attends Kyonan U. But Amagi warns of potential complications at the beginning of Ultra 7, Episode 29, The Earthling All Alone. Amagi's words prove prophetic. The Ultra Guard suspects the professor in charge of the satellite project of being an undercover alien. So Soga and fiance Sayako attempt to speak privately with the professor's assistant, Ichinomiya. He refuses to help with the investigation, expressing loyalty to Professor Niwa, who supported his research when no one else did. Unfortunately for him, the professor really is an alien from Planet Prot, and when Soga tries to apprehend him, he turns the tables, disabling Soga's tracking beacon and reading his memories to learn the speed of TDF's response time in order to plan an invasion of Earth. Dan arrives at the university and begins a protracted battle with Prot, but it's really Ichinomiya, the man disillusioned by humanity and betrayed by Professor Niwa, who holds the key to stopping the alien offensive. 
The Earthling All Alone is a strong standalone episode enhanced by good writing, an appealing location, and noteworthy special effects, which include a remarkable scale model set of the college campus, and perhaps the most jaw-dropping eye-slugger beheading thus far. Finally, the spotlight falls on UltraGuard member Soga, and actor Shinsuke Achiya delivers a performance accentuating Soga's boyish charm. Achiya would go on to appear in other Subaraya television series like Mighty Jack and Operation Mystery, and was cast in a number of World War II period films, including 1970's Tora Tora Tora. While there is no Kyonan University in real life, there is a Konan University in Kobe, which had a Department of Applied Physics by 1962. No word on whether a Dr. Niwa was part of the faculty. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. found what they came for. That incredible lost world shut off by a towering wall of ice from which had come strange tales of wonder. Edgar Rice Burroughs, master of astounding adventure, takes us back to the fantastic island of Caprona, where time has stood still for millions of years. Where men and beasts fight a fierce battle for survival in a land of savage mystery. See the forbidden city of Skulls, where they sacrifice prisoners to the volcano god. gonna stop him with rocks? No dice, Bo. I didn't come all this way to leave you behind. You can't get away from the Nagas, but we'll never get home. The land will stop you, Ben. It's a lie. Hello there, Monstercade Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are going to hear Patrick Wayne's Monster Bash panel. I found his two monster-laden fantasy films featured in FM. First up is Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which was covered in FM 136 from August of 1977. It was 10 pages long with 15 photos. Here are some highlights. Hyperborea, legendary land. Trace the wild north winds to their place of origin and still you will not have reached. Hyperborea, colder than Siberia, more desolate than the North Pole. Its icy fortress conceals secrets frozen since time immemorial. And it is to this forbidden and foreboding land that Sinbad must venture in what is actually the saga of his fifth voyage. Guided ever onward by the genius hand of Ray Harryhausen, the intrepid adventurer of the Arabian Nights encounters demons and denizens of an ancient era that defy the imagination of modern man. In the pantheon of Harryhausen's animodels, we all have our favorites. Some to the Emir, who came 20 million miles to Earth. Some Kali, of the multiple sinuous arms. Some, the two-headed rock, 
Some, the Redosaurus, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms that was attracted to the foghorn of Ray Bradbury's lighthouse. Some, the sword-fighting skeleton. The dinosaurs of one million years BC. The harpies, the selenites of H.G. Wells' first men in the moon. Guanji, the prehistoric survivor of the Lost Valley. The dragon of the cave. The skeletal warrior sprouting from dragon's teeth. The king-sized crustacean of the mysterious island. The quintipus. The list is seemingly endless. Question, how does one add to an endless list? Answer, by the magic of Harryhausen. In Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, the great ray has created for our amazement and entertainment the Minotaur, a creature to rival Talos, the gigantic metallic animate figure of Jason and the Argonauts. The Minotaur is a bronze colossus, a metal monster, a clinking, clanking, all-powerful creature that, though inside its impervious chest beats a human heart, has a head enough to frighten any man, for it is not that of a human being, but an angry bovine, an enraged bull, the Minotaur, a ton or more of inexorable, inhuman terror. The ghouls, spectral three-dimensional images, creatures whose father might have been Rinchen, who might have been mothered by x-rays, apparitions of muscle and marrow, sinew and bone, things from some twisted twilight zone, born to confront human beings with horror incarnate. The troglodyte, formidable in appearance, like a combination eight-man snowman with a horn like that of the cyclops that Sinbad encountered on his seventh voyage. But the nice feature about Trog, as he is known to his friends, is that he's an amiable sort unless deliberately provoked. Zenobia. Now she's the exact opposite of Trog. If you were the last one left on King Kong's log, she'd push you off onto the spider pit. If white magic could overcome her black and she could be captured and exhibited to the world, she could be billed as the wickedest witch that ever was. Good thing that such badness only exists in a world that never was. Zenobia can transform herself into practically any beast's body. If she chose, she could be a gorilla or a lion, a snarling panther or a swooping vulture. But one of her transformations fouled up when she was changing into a seabird, and she has wound up with a claw leg which she drags behind her. This mishap did nothing to improve her already abominable temper. The walrus. Yes, the walrus. A carefully guarded secret for two years. This Sinbad has been since 1975 in the making. Ray Harryhausen confided to your editor about 24 months ago that he was for the first time in his animation career going to bring this particular mammal to the screen. Although Harryhausen fans ever since tried to trick me into a lapse of memory, a trip of the tongue, Wild Rodenogens were not able to drag this secret from me. But at last, it is out, and Ray hopes his walrus gets your seal of approval. And a saber-toothed tiger. The terror of the caveman. A huge flesh-and-blood machine of feline ferocity. Its head raised like a sphinx or heraldic beast, awaiting resurrection. For what malignant purpose? Has it been dreaming for an ice age of an unwary human being to release it like a genie from a bottle so that once again it may rend and tear with fang and claw? Caution, Sinbad. Pat Wayne, son of John, is the latest incarnation of Sinbad and proves himself a chip off the old chopping block. Pop, in his long and active career, has only mainly had to contend with Indians and cowboy badniks. But young Pat is challenged by more menacing monsters than Siegfried of yore as he seeks out and destroys all evil creatures in his path across the seven seas of antiquity. The article continues with a brief spoiler-filled synopsis and later ends with this brief question and answer. Would Harryhausen let us down? Never. In FM 173, from May of 1981, we see a short article on the 1977 amicus production of The People That Time Forgot. Three pages with three photos were dedicated to this dinosaur film inspired by Edgar Rice Burroughs and starring our guest today, Patrick Wayne. Edgar Rice Burroughs, a name to conjure with, creator of Worlds of Wonder on Mars, Venus at the Earth's core, and more, beyond the farther star, and on the lost island of Caprona. When last seen in 1916, Bowen Tyler, Doug McClure, was desperately hurling a canister into the sea, hoping the ocean currents would carry it from the mysterious island to some civilized part of the world, and that he would be rescued. For details of The Land That Time Forgot, see FM 116. 
As the new film opens, three years have passed, and at last the canister with Tyler's information about the unknown world and its prehistoric environment is discovered off the coast of Scotland. Ben McBride, Patrick Wayne, longtime friend of Tyler, has the devil's own time convincing a London newspaper editor that the amazing message isn't a hoax. If the paper will sponsor an exhibition to Caprona, I'll lead it, and if we return with Tyler, it will be the scoop of the century. Like its predecessor, The Land That Time Forgot, The People That Time Forgot is aimed at family audiences. High adventure, non-stop action, story twists, and shock encounters with prehistoric beasts and primitive humans are just a few of the exciting ingredients. Caprona is a hostile prehistoric island in the Antarctic where life has remained unchanged for millions of years. The Stegosaurus roams freely. The Tyrannosaurus is king. The People That Time Forgot was made by the same amicus team responsible for the original film, as well as for the other Edgar Rice Burroughs adaption at the Earth's core, seen in FM 129. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. These eyes peer out through time, through space, to a land beyond imagination. These are the eyes of the tiger. Follow their gaze back, back to where legends first began, where fantasy is real and the land of the lost is rediscovered. Journey across the oceans of antiquity to the northern edge of the ancient world. As Sinbad battles with both human From the depths of the earth, I command you, arise! And supernatural evil. Destroy them! Kill Sinbad! Bewitched him. Let me get the smile from her face! Filmed in the miracle of Dinorama. Starring Patrick Wayne, Taryn Power, Jane Seymour. From producers Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen. Come face to face with the prehistoric trog. See the sorceress bring life to the all-powerful Minotaur. Eat with the power as only I command you. See Sinbad battle the saber-toothed tiger, guardian of the secret shrine. Join Sinbad, the greatest of all adventurers, in his biggest adventure of all. the tiger. And now Monster Bash is very happy to present to you, doing the Q&A, John Bishop and Patrick Wayne. Here Thank <laughs> you.
I don't remember any of this. Did that actually take That's what actually happened. So this year I want to switch up a little bit, so I just want to do you? <laughs> I do. Some of us, yes, some of us. The, um, the fact your fencing is fantastic in that film. You got the fencing. The I have a story about that. And it's an involved story. It's a two-part story. So I did this film called Comancheros with my father. And uh, thank you. Yeah, my father was not a person to give advice, really. I mean, I, he led by example. And... Um, as far as work goes, he was always prepared. He came to work prepared. And that meant in every aspect, not only learning your line, but if you have to do something physical, you should be prepared to do it before the scene. Because if you're struggling with something physical, then the scene goes to hell. You can't, you know, you, you can't carry on a dialogue with a person if you think about something. Anyway, so in this movie called Cheros, I had this scene where I was riding a horse and the cameras were very close to panning with me, staying with me, and they saw the rushes and my dad called me and he said, you look very bad, but he didn't say that, but he said something like that. <laughs> on a horse, and you're gonna learn how to ride a horse and you're getting out of this business. He scared the hell out of me. Well, it was the beginning of the filming, so I had like six weeks and I worked every day in any spare time riding this horse and working with people and get, we reshot the thing and it worked out fine, so that was that was good. But that was a very valuable lesson to me. So getting to Sinbad, uh, this was an English production, and the English people came to California to cast this film, and I was going to do a screen test. And in the screen test, they put a beard on me, and I worked with a, a fencing guy for a day to do this little two-minute audition. Got the part, and uh, so I told. Charlie Schneer, the producer, I said, look, I don't know how to certify. I don't know how to use fencing thing. I would really like to work with this guy because it was you know, six weeks before the film started. He goes, don't worry about that. You know, we have a son man, and he's going to teach you how to fence. It's not a good problem. I went, no, I'm really not going to do that. I can't do that. I, I, I just basically put my foot down, and he finally consented to allow me to work with this guy. I worked with him every day, and I got pretty darn good with it. And uh, so when we went to, our first sequence uh, was in Malta, and the stuntman who was supposed to teach me how to fencing didn't come to the set till we got to Spain, and the most difficult scene I had to do with fencing was with the three skeleton, was done in Malta. So they had blocked this uh, two days to shoot this. And so uh, in the morning we, we go in and they gave me these three stuntmen and we're going to choreograph this routine. And the, the idea is they, they, we do this routine, then they step out and I do like a dance routine, uh, pantomime without anything in it. So uh, we go and start working and about 10.30 I came out and I was right to the producer I said, well we're ready. And they go like, what? I said, yeah, we got things. They come in and we, we show the routine, they step out, and we got the whole thing before lunch on the first day. So I got them a day and a half on And so after this, Charles Schneer, the producer, came over. He says, you know, that was really a good idea I had. <laughs> and we worked it out the first. We'd still be there today, I swear to God, if I hadn't done it. But anyway, that's one of the things about fencing. It was a fun deal, fun experience. Another time, we were doing, uh, I, I, they had a camera close up and there would be monsters on either side and they just some in with battle axes. And they were not blocking them like this in the close up. And um, I blocked this one and the axe came off the, and it hit me in the head. It might, it might hit certain bleeding. And the director goes, break for lunch. <laughs> I just stopped shooting. And there was a nurse on the set, and she came over and looked at me and went, I'm passed out. I got the stuff I came over and we, we stopped some bleeding. Oh yeah, there was some fun stuff that happened on that film. And of course, you know, working with Jane Seymour. You saw how beautiful she was? She's still very lovely, lovely, beautiful girl. 
She's been married four times. I wasn't one of the husbands, but certainly could have been. <laughs> a lot of fun. Your other co-star was great, too, Taryn Powers. Taryn Powers is gorgeous. Tyrone Powers' daughter. Completely correct, Tyrone Powers' daughter. I worked with her dad in a movie called The Long Gray Line. A uh, story about West Point. It was a fun movie. You get a chance to see it. Morgan O'Hara gave me my first screen kiss in that film. But Terry Power was really amazing. Very, she spoke four languages, absolutely gorgeous. But she experimented with a lot of substances, and someday she'd come in and she couldn't even say, speak one language. <laughs> she's a great, a great girl. And I probably should tell us story because she's no longer with us. She passed away at early age, but a great gal. And then something else I learned recently that I didn't know. I know you've had lots of success in various areas. You've hosted game shows and variety shows. You've played a, a wide variety of roles. But I didn't realize that one of the premier performers of the 20th century had actually played you. So I, I just wanted to know what was it like to be portrayed by Benny Hill. Oh my God. <laughs> Benny Hill, yeah, I did a, uh, see, it wasn't that big a show here in America, but I did a variety series in Monte Carlo. Uh, like the old Ed, Ed Sullivan show. I was the host of the show and I had, uh, they'd have a highliner like Cher, Elton John, and different people like that would be the big star show. And then they had these European acts, different different acts in there. All done in Monte Carlo. And um, it was, they played on Susification uh, here in the United States, but it was a big show in London. And because he, he did a spoof of it, they wouldn't do a spoof of a show if people weren't aware of it, popular. And so he did Benny, Benny Hill, you know, standing up, he's like me, you know, the, 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 you know, the narrator and stuff, saying that, with these beautiful shoulders standing around. And at the end he says, I'm getting told, and he turns around and they pull a plug and he deflates like this and they put him in a suitcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was a fun thing. <laughs> the Monte Carlo is great. Living in the south of France for four months. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Mr. Wayne, I just heard before I ask you your, my question. I just wanted to say uh, that movie was actually the first movie I saw you in, and it was awesome. So. Uh, if you pay me a compliment, speak up. I didn't hear you. <laughs> she said that was the first uh, film. Oh, this song? Uh, that, of, of yours that she's oh. seen, and you were also. Oh, you're sweet. So Thank you very much. So my question for you is so I'm assuming that when you did the stop motion back then, you were just fighting air? Was that weird? That's right, fighting air. Yeah, did that, was that weird? Like, were you like, what am I doing? Well, the weird thing is that, I mean, <laughs> when you're doing the job, you're so focused on. Uh, what you're doing, Ray Harryhausen, who did all the stop action photography, was there. It's all very, these parameters you have to work in were very intense. And so you're thinking about all this stuff, and you almost have to, like, envision something when you're doing this. There has to be something sort of in your mind. But when I saw the movie, and I saw these creatures and things that I was fighting, I couldn't believe they weren't really there. I, well, I saw it, but those were there. I, I, I can't believe they weren't there. It was amazing. He was a, he was a genius. Genius. Went to dinner at his house one night. He lived in London. American living in London. And um, I was talking to him at dinner. And I said, well, where's your city? What are you doing? I said, he goes, upstairs on the third floor. I said, well, can I see it? He goes, like, you really want to? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he had no sense of this. Very, very, yeah. Very humble guy, but so talented. Yes. Yeah. For which role are you most proud of, or which role do you want to be remembered for the most? I mean, I had a great time in a lot of different films. This was this was definitely a challenge. And I did another film for Disney called The Bears and I, where for ninety percent of the film I'm working with three little bear cubs. They don't read the script. <laughs> You know, you turn it loose and you just got to go with the flow. And it really turned out amazingly well. We had a lot of fun. We were in um, Canada uh, 
above Vancouver, hundreds of miles, I guess. It's a big, big lake called Chilco Lake. And um, during the filming, my dad, who was going fishing up farther north, maybe Alaska or something, he came in on a float plane to visit and say hello. And he had my little brother there. And uh, he's getting ready to leave to go fishing. He says, hey, Ethan, why don't you stay with your brother? I'm going to go fishing for 10 days. Dad, I'm doing a movie here. He <laughs> made my little brother with me. He didn't have a toothbrush. He's a kid, and I respect him. We had a good time. Uh, Patrick, uh, you started another great drive-in classic, huge sentimental, sentimental favorite of mine. My my late father took me to see it at the at the drive-in when I was 10 years old. Uh, the people that time forgot. Oh yeah. How? Thank you. And director Kevin Connor is going to be at Cinema Wasteland come the end of September, beginning of October. Please give so, my best. Yeah, I will. So how is it to work with the great cast of that movie, Queen Sarah Douglas, and especially director Kevin Connor? Well, this was, uh, again, before CGI, but not anywhere near the kind of quality that the Ray Harry House did. But we had a fabulous cast. Kevin Connor was amazing. Directors can be temperamental. They can get excited and frustrated. And Kevin Connors was very, very paced, very paced. I worked very, and you, know, you have problems with you have. We had these great big things that were, you know, had problems with all the time. And he was, uh, you know, managed all that stuff very well. Um, I had a chance to work with Doug McClure again. We did a film called Shenandoah about 15 years earlier. And so this is, uh, you know, it's funny how you, you work with people, you get an intense relationship with them, very close friends, and you don't see them again for 15 years. But the next time you see them, it's like you just were with them the day before. It's great, you know, it was terrific. And um, so we had, we had a, a, a good cast and uh, a lot of fun on that show. Uh, I was going to tell a story, I forgot what it was about that. I'll probably think of it later. Yeah. But it was. Uh, Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. So, um, what was her name? The two women. There was uh, Sarah Douglas. Sarah Douglas. Sarah Douglas. But the other girl. Dana Gillespie. Dana Gillespie. Dana Gillespie. One day she comes to the set. She says, "We're going to Wembley Stadium tonight to see uh, Pink Floyd. You should come." Wow. And I said, "Great. That sounds really great." So I got my girlfriend, and we go over to Wembley Stadium, and we come to the table. And the guy says, tickets please. I said, our friends have tickets, and they're sitting in row E22. And the guy went, okay. So he let us in. We go in, and there was Dana. She was with Kurt Christian, or whoever the other boy was. I forget who she, the other young guy in the film. Um, so they're sitting there, and she goes, great to see you. Where are you sitting? I said, I'm sitting with you. And she says, we don't have tickets for you. Slung in, where are we sitting? So great. But it was the same city, so we just pushed over. Nobody cared. We sat there. It's like Pink Floyd. Yeah! That was fun. What are your recollections of Beyond Atlantis? They're not good. <laughs> um, I mean, it was, uh, again, you, you know, you're with people that you can have a lot of fun with. I love Lee Christian, John, Ashley. Sid Hay. And I were born on the same day in the same year. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's how often do you run into people like that. Anyway, most of it was just, uh, I couldn't believe they even had a film. I couldn't believe <laughs> the way they shot and stuff. It's just completely different. Uh, but again, you know, they pay you to come and so you do the work. Yes. Um, watching this film, I felt like Patrick Trapp was very much channeling his Doctor Who character. And, um, you know, I've seen him in other stuff. He has range and doesn't do that in every film. And I was familiar if you had seen him in Doctor Who before you did this movie. No, I hadn't seen him. But, uh, you know, it may have been a suggestion and just, you know, play that character. Or if it ain't broken, don't fix it. It worked. It worked, yeah. Yes. Say again? Was it intimidating to work with your dad? Did he let What's you the do? Word? Was, it, was it intimidating or intimidating? Yeah. Did he let you do your thing or did he? Sometimes. 
No, it was not intimidating. He's really an amazing, you know, he's a dad. He's, he's a trapeze. He's, you know, a safety net. He's, you feel totally confident and comfortable. Like, you, know, you, you know he's got your back the whole time. But um, if, you know, if he has a disagreement with something you're doing in the scene and he says, I'll do it this way, you go, okay. <laughs> Well, she's an amazing woman. Obviously, she worked in a lot of films with my dad, and they played well together. Uh, she's a big woman, and she needs a big man to look feminine. And she looked very feminine in, in roles with, with my dad. Some other movies, uh, the leading men, she was kind of dominated. But she was definitely, uh, it worked so well with my dad. And she was really like a member of the family. And to her credit, uh, when my father passed away, she went to the Senate Congress of the United States and pitched for my dad to get the Congressional Medal of Freedom. And she sat there and said, I'm not leaving until you tell me he's going to get this medal. And, and he got it. It was great. It was great work. I love that woman. Was Mr. Roberts my first film? I had actually six films done by then. First film was Rio Grande, then I worked in a film called Sunshine's Bright, then I worked in The Quiet Man, then I worked in, uh, what was what film you were asking about? Oh, I worked in Long Gray Line, and then Mr. Roberts. Mr. Roberts in Hawaii, what fun. Worked with Jimmy Cagney, Henry Fonda, Jack Lemmon, William Powell, I mean, what a privilege growing up, just having an experience with this classic film. How old were you when you were in Mr. Roberts? Not very old, see, because I'm only 60 now, so I was about <laughs> minus 13. <laughs> Mr. Roberts, I was 13, 13 years old. When you're, uh, we happen to be working uh, during the school year, they have to send a teacher with you. And so, uh, I, I bring my books and I get them there and he meets the person and he says, well, what do you say? I said, well, I'm in uh, second year Latin, first year Greek, first year algebra, and I go, whoa, 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 he says, you're on your own, I can't help you with anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just more or less fumbled through on my own. My dad never pushed any of his kids, you know, in any direction about it. He really left it up to us to decide what we want to do ourselves. So growing up, what, what, what I was doing with acting is not because he was doing it, but none of my brothers and sisters had any interest in doing that. So when I go and work with him, they weren't around. So I had my dad all myself. So it was a really special thing. Now, I love the acting. I love the work. I mean, it's child's play. It's like we do this stuff as kids, and then you do it in film, and it's the same thing, really. You adopt the character. So um, that wasn't a, a tricky question, though, because I had to figure out for myself, am I doing this because I like to be with my dad, or am I doing it because I like the work? So I ended up liking the work. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now with the uh, John Wayne Cancer Foundation? Yeah, so um, my father passed away. Uh, he, he died of a cancer in 1979. Um, there was uh, a couple of doctors that had experimental treatment, and they came to my dad in you know, the last couple of weeks, and they said, we'd like to give you this treatment. You know? And he said, yeah, great, and if it works, you know, I'm going to help you guys. Well, it didn't work, and he passed away. So my brothers and sisters and I decided, as a legacy to my father, that we would use his name to create awareness and raise funds for cancer research, cancer education. Uh, so we started uh, with these two doctors at UCLA, and then we moved to a community hospital in Santa Monica, with the John Wayne Cancer Institute, where we developed uh, a lot of great research and great treatment. 
And at the same time, we, we had a fellowship program where we took board-certified surgeons and trained them to be cancer surgeons. And we started this early on, and we, we trained 160 fellows to this point. And um, the Surgical Society of Oncology about 10 years ago decided that, yeah, if you're going to have a cancer tumor removed, you should go to a board-certified cancer surgeon. So at that time, there were 12 sites around the country that was training uh, surgeons to become cancer surgeons. Of the 12 sites, six of them were board certified, and we were our, our fellowship program was board certified. So, if you went to if you became board certified cancer surgeon, if you went to MB Anderson in Texas, no, but you went to John Wayne Cancer Institute, yes, you got it. So, anyway, we're uh, now really involved with uh, we're we're We've spread our wings and we have a fellowship program at UC Irvine in California. And two weeks ago, we partnered with uh, Texas Tech Medical uh, to start a fellowship program there. And they, um, they, they have a, a program called uh, The Big Cure. And what they've done is asked, or are in the process of asking 100 people to give $100,000 to endow this fellowship program. We had this meeting, as I said, a week before my dad's birthday, and they'd been like working for two days, and they'd already raised two and a half million dollars. So I'm sure they probably got the money all done by now. They were really excited about that because we're always struggling to have the money to pay for it. You get these young people who want to take a fellowship program, it's, you know, it costs money to, uh, to keep these, you have to pay them and to keep them. In the, in the school. So when you endow the program, you have the funds, you know you're going to have the funds every year to train two or three of these guys. So we're really excited about this program. Anyway, we've done some exciting things. Um, my, one of my own personal experiences was my daughter uh, went to work and she had a law firm in Los Angeles. They had an office in London and she wanted to go and work there for a year because her boyfriend, who is now her husband, was British. So she went over there and ended up staying for four years. So I would go over a couple times a year and visit her. And one year, I said, let's invite Leslie Silver, the daughter of the producer of Cinda. Uh, her daughter, she was a production assistant on the film. And so we invited her to lunch. And during the lunch, she said, you know, I'm a, a breast cancer survivor. I said, I have no idea. I mean, I would send her a Christmas card, you know, we didn't have much contact, but I did not know this. She said, yeah, six years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I went online, I went to your website, and I saw that you had developed a sentinel node procedure, which was a low invasive procedure to take care of the tumors for, this, uh, for breast cancer. She went, scouted London, found a doctor who used that procedure. She's totally cancer-free for six years. Now, I know, but, you know for, for me to have a person, uh, one of my friends, benefited from the work that we've been doing, I'm never going to stop doing this. I'm just going to keep it keep until we find the final tool. Yes, sir. Uh, how was it like working with your dad in the animal? Well, I'm, actually, I was. Uh, during the summer was great, then the fall came and I was in my junior year of college. I was a biology major and I had uh, 21 units, I don't know, some crazy schedule, but the, my dad arranged it so that I go to school during the weekend, the one they needed me, they would fly me out on Friday afternoon, I'd work on Saturday, and fly back Sunday, go to school next week. It was a harrowing schedule, um, so I wasn't really around all the time. Uh, but he he uh, he was he worked 24 hours a day in that film. You know, that's his baby. So uh, most of it was just you know anything we could do to help you, Bob. Yes, we are back. Thank you. What's your fondest memory of your father? Well, you know this is so strange. One uh, of my dad was in the hospital. He was, you know, the last six weeks of his life, he, uh, you know, he, he, he died, you know, he, he had uh, stomach cancer. 
and uh, he was amazing. And I had the sense that he was going to be there. He never complained. He never, you know, he was always trying to help other people around him that were sick. If he could get up, he'd walk in and encourage other people that they were going to get better. And uh, you know, I thought, you know, this guy's indestructible. He's going he's to fight this. He's going to beat it. Uh, it didn't happen that way. But what I saw was this man's courage. And uh, that was a real courage. That he, had. he always was a courageous guy on screen, but he really was the courageous person in life. And uh, it meant a lot to me to have that experience. Well, movies are the, the jam, you know, that's what they take the time to, to do. Often on television, you're on a three-day deal and they, they're rushing to get the stuff done. And if you ever approach a director, you know, you have a question like this, do it, do it, do it, we gotta move to the next side. Um, I worked on um, a soap opera for one week. I, um, I think it's called All My Children. Is that the one with Erica? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was a seagull. I was the captain of this ship, a sea cruise. She was on the ship, and we had a little affair on the ship, you know, with Erica. And um, I mean, you work. They, they give you a script. You take it home at night for the page the next day. The next morning you go in, and they have a dry run in front of the writers. You read the script like this. And then they go and change everything. <laughs> in fact, it's bad to learn it because then you gotta forget it. So you, you don't learn it, you get it, and then a few minutes later they give you this thing, and, and um, you try to learn it, and then you do a dry blocking, and then you're on the set, all of a sudden you're doing it. And Erica was great. I mean, she had, like, her script would be in drawers and in cabinets and stuff. She's naturally moving around and doing all this stuff. She was an amazing. You know, she had two children on that show, which is, and never missed a day of work. I don't know how she did it, but she's this amazing gal. It was a lot of fun. But work, it was a lot of hard work. So the movies, yeah, that's, that's really fun. And we have time for one last question. Yes, Outstanding memories on the searchers. Well, yeah. Natalie <laughs> Wood. I mean, we were, we, were, we were the only, everybody else was older than we were. We were like teenagers, but young teenagers. So we spent a lot of time together, became really good friends. And I was totally in love with her. She was a fabulous gal. Died way too young, horrible waste. Uh, but that was my big, big memory. Of her just spending a lot of time with her, and we took a lot of razzing, you know. Jeffrey Hunter was unbearable, he's taking up all the time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been fun. I hope you enjoyed the film. Um, I've had a great weekend here, a beautiful weekend tomorrow, and uh. Thank you all for your support. You've been great. And Patrick, we have something that my wife Ursula has a little gift for you from uh, the Monster Bash. I don't have any room in my suitcase. You can eat this before you hit the plane. I deserve it. Yes, uh, thanks, oh, thank you, thanks, Ron. Patrick Wayne, Monster Bash. Submerged for centuries, Atlantis, the lost continent, rises in mythological magnificence. Meet Serena, conceived and spawned in a world beneath the waves. Mermaid majesty, drifting through dreamy depths. Fire in her eyes, love on her lips, desire in her heart. Underwater warriors in a savage struggle for survival. I will not sacrifice myself. You will mate! You will mate!
Beyond dreams, beyond thought, beyond Atlantis, astounding the imagination, ravishing the senses. The siren of the sea rising through rapture serene. Afloat on waves of pleasure. In a bed of pearls. The ancient army of Atlantis clashing with modern soldiers of science. Atlantis must conquer or die. A primeval princess leads her people from a kingdom beneath the sea to a blazing battleground above. Beyond Atlantis. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for downloading the show, sharing the posts about the show, following us on Twitter, joining the Facebook group, liking the Facebook page, joining us on Discord, on Patreon, on Reddit, wherever else you can find us online. Please engage with us because, you know, part of the whole reason I do this is for the community. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm being selfish. One of my absolute my favorite things that's come from doing the podcast is connecting with you. I've made so many incredible dear friends through the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. So I just mentioned them. Facebook, we've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group, and you can follow us on Twitter. Just look up Monster Kid Radio. We do have a Discord. Don't do a lot over there, but maybe that's because you're not there joining us yet. Maybe you need to hop on over there and then we'll get the party started. Also with Reddit, you can look us up on Reddit as well. Same situation. We do have a Patreon. It's not as active as it could be, and I am doing some real reevaluations of all the different things that we do here at Monster Kid Radio, and that includes Patreon. So maybe in September we're going to see that get revamped a little bit. I appreciate the support that you throw my way through Patreon. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to pay some of the bills that I have in my real life if not for Patreon. So thank you for being a patron if you do follow us over there on Patreon. I can tell you right now, one of the things that you do get and will continue to get even after we kind of revamp or streamline Patreon is you will have access to the special unlisted YouTube videos, which are the movies that we present in the Monster Kid Movie Club that I've gone in and done some work to. We all know that a lot of these older movies, the transfers, the prints, they haven't really been kept in the best of shape or, or protected or preserved or restored. So I do what I can. I'm just a guy with a computer and some software and a lot of patience to go in and kind of fiddle with a few virtual knobs here and there to make these movies look as good as they possibly can, to make them sound as good as they possibly can. I think I do a pretty decent job. And if you want to be able to check out these movies on YouTube through these unlisted links, well, you've got to become a patron over at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. The different levels are there. Just follow the level that you are interested in and you'll get access to the YouTube links. So please consider supporting us over there. I just mentioned the stream. You do know that we stream movies, right? Over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio, you can watch movies with us twice a week, every Tuesday and every Saturday. Now, Saturday is the big day. Saturday is the Monster Kid Movie Club. We show anywhere from four to six, sometimes even seven movies throughout the course of the day. And then I put it on loop, I, on repeat, and I just walk away. So if you can't join us live on Saturday, which I really wish you would because I appear live on Saturday, usually around 4.20 p.m. Pacific, we love to hang out and chat and have a good conversation going. But if you want to come in and just watch some movies, Twitch.tv slash Monster Kid Radio is a place to do it. On Tuesday, we refresh the stream, and sometimes we show science fiction movies. Sometimes we show cliffhangers. Sometimes we show fan films. And you know what? I'm feeling kind of fan filmy again. I think we're going to show some more Star Trek fan films on Tuesday. I just decided that right now. I hope it wasn't too obvious, but yeah, I just decided that right now. We're going to show some Star Trek fan films in the Monster Kid Movie Club, or excuse me, the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, on Tuesday. Again, that's over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. If you are on Twitch, please head over there and give us a follow because you'll be notified every time we go live. Please consider uh, subscribing as well. You know, if you 
are an Amazon Prime user, you do get one free Prime subscription a month to use on Twitch, please consider throwing it our way or, or just subscribing to the channel because it helps us out with everything here. Remember those bills I mentioned a little bit ago? Yeah, wouldn't be able to make all those bills if not for the support that I get through Twitch and Patreon and everything else. Also, we have contests and giveaways and conversations, and it's just a good time. And I try to bring on my cat Wednesday. She loves to pop in on camera. Okay, she has no idea what the camera is, but she likes to hang out with me in the office, and I like to point the webcam at her. So, you know, maybe you get to see my cat Wednesday if you join us over there. And hey, did you just hear that? I just heard that. It was a very audible sigh of relief coming from Kenny in old Mexico, who is ecstatic to know that I know what we're doing next week here on the show so he can prep his famous Monsters of Filmland segment. No pressure, Kenny. Anyway, what's coming up next week? Ricardo Delgado is coming back to the show next week, and we're going to talk about a universal film. We're going to talk about 1931's Spanish-language film, Dracula. This is such a unique movie. It's such an interesting movie. And Ricardo's a great guy. He's worked in Hollywood. He's worked in comic books. He recently just put out a really cool Dracula book. We're going to talk about that as well as his upcoming Art of Dracula book. So we're going to talk about that as well. But that conversation is coming up next week here on the show. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Or if you're on YouTube, I know a lot of you are starting to consume the podcast on YouTube. Subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel. There's no charge for any of that. And again, you get notified as soon as a new episode goes out. So don't miss out on Ricardo Delgado joining the show next week to talk about Dracula. I'm not even going to try to say the word Dracula, which is really just Dracula with the rolled R in Spanish because I can't roll my R's. So if you want to hear anybody roll their R's next week, I think Ricardo can do it. So uh, yeah, bonus. I don't know. I don't know what's coming up after that, but I've got a number of ideas in the works right now for things that are coming up on future episodes of Monster Kid Radio and the Twitch stream and in publication. There is something in print coming later this year. I know I keep talking about it uh, in very vague terms, and I'm going to continue to talk about it in vague terms, but I can tell you that I just finished editing a written piece that was submitted for this publication yesterday. It's incredible. I can't wait to tell you more about it. Only way you're going to find out more about it is if you keep listening to Monster Kid Radio. So you know what you got to do. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, <gasps> unported license, except for the song, Savvy Showstopper. That is copyright 2022. That is copyright Catatonics. You can pick it up on their latest release on tour from Canada. Just came out. Go check it out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>